Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning, church. Good to see you guys this morning. Welcome to those who are online. So glad that we can be together this morning. My name is Jeff Skipper, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Uh, and if you've just started joining us recently, or maybe today's your first day, or maybe you've just already forgotten what series we're going through, uh, we're going through Hebrews 11, this great chapter on faith, uh, where the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians who are starting to lose heart. Uh, they're facing suffering and persecution, and they're in danger of just black, backsliding and falling away from the faith, and I wonder if you can relate to that. Uh, I'm sure it's a week-by-week week, uh, question where you have to take your pulse, uh, where you feel that, because we're constantly surrounded by bad news and worry and fear and all of these things, and so what we need are reminders of what is true. Uh, that's one reason we meet every week. We start our weeks. Uh, I need a reset. I need a reorientation to clear out the fog of the lies and be reminded of what is true. And the author is doing that for this congregation of these people in Hebrews. Uh, so in a way, I picture the author sitting these struggling believers down and he opens up his Hebrew Bible and I picture him kind of firing his pipe up and turning on the fireplace and he starts flipping through his Hebrew Bible and he just starts telling them stories. Uh, to, to remind them of the family of faith that they come from. And as he goes through the, all of these stories, he's doing a couple things. One, he's normalizing their struggles, and then he's inspiring them to persevere. And so he begins, and he says, you remember uh, your father Abraham. Let me tell you stories about him and, and remind you. Uh, do you remember Noah and, and Joseph? Do you remember Moses and the Red Sea? And he keeps saying, this is the family you belong to, and what you're experiencing isn't foreign. I know it feels that way, but this is the normal path in this fallen world. And so the only way to complete this path is by faith. And he keeps repeating that phrase all the way through the chapter. By faith, by trusting the Lord when you can't see. Trusting the Lord, even when it doesn't make sense. And although these stories, uh, or at least this chapter, the stories themselves are much older, but this chapter, you know, is 2,000 years old, these stories resonate with our hearts, a testimony to the similar struggles we face as believers even across time. And as we go through this chapter in this series, it might feel redundant, right? Uh, but if you're anything like me, I know this, this chapter has really resonated with me. I can't get enough of hearing uh, stories about faith over fear and being, being reminded of even simple Bible verses of do not fear, uh, right? Perfect love casts out fear. God didn't give us a spirit of fear. Right? And each week, we're putting courage into ourselves. And that's, that's what the author, that's his point, right? He's driving his point home with all of these examples. He's wanting to pile up uh, this theme on us. And notice, he's not concerned with analyzing abstract nuances of theology, like Paul, when Paul digs down into themes like justification and sanctification, and he's kind of turning that diamond and showing, you know, how those two things are different and, and what it means. This, this is less like sitting in the clubhouse watching tape on the mechanics of how to swing a baseball bat. And this is more like going out on the field and grabbing a bat and taking BP, right? Uh, he's concerned with how does my faith actually change the way I live my life in the day-to-day? -day? How does it change your life? And really what he's saying is there's no such thing as a faith that's not lived out. I mean, look at, look at Hebrews 11. Everybody's doing stuff. The whole story is people, they're doing stuff. They believed, so they acted. It, it hit the concrete 
of their lives. Notice, they went places, they did things, they made big decisions, small decisions when it was scary because they trusted the Lord and they followed him. Yes, they're justified by grace, through faith, not works. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But the evidence that their faith was authentic was that it was actually applied to their lives. And so the author, he keeps flipping through his Hebrew Bible, right? We've kind of went through Genesis, and now we've just gotten up through Exodus, and finally he gets to the book of Joshua, to the stories of the Battle of Jericho and a woman named Rahab. And there's a time to ask questions like this about these stories. You know, why did Israel attack Jericho? What, what was the conquest all about? You know, Rahab seemed to lie, but now here she's held up as a model of faith. Is that okay? Because that seems kind of shady. I don't, I don't really know about that. But those are not the questions the author is seeking to answer. Again, he wants us to ask if these are stories of what great faith looks like. We just read in CBR in 1 Corinthians this week. They're written down for our instruction. Then how do they inform the way we live our lives now by faith? Like what can we learn from how they lived out their faith, especially as we live on this side of the cross and the resurrection with the Holy Spirit in us? How does that inform the way we live? And so I want to read just two verses Uh, This morning, verses 30 and 31 from chapter 11, and obviously this summarizes multiple chapters back in the book of Joshua, okay? And so let's read God's word here. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is God's word. And so let's look at this text this morning. I want to look at three points, and there's an outline in your worship folder. Uh, Faith looks extraordinary, faith looks ordinary, and faith looks to Jesus. So let's look at this first point, faith looks extraordinary. Um, Reading a book on Andrew Jackson and the the Battle of New Orleans, and it's set in the context, maybe you know, of the War of 1812. And so just rewind a little bit. The U.S. had won the Revolutionary War uh, you know, our, 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 you know, the settlers, they begin to settle in this, this land, and the British didn't stop agitating our young country. Uh, they, they kept kidnapping our sailors. Uh, they were stirring up tribes to attack us. They just wouldn't stop. And so in classic, like, United States fashion, we're like, we declare war. And it's like, no, this is not a good idea. <laughs> July 1st, 1812, uh, the U.S. declare war again on Britain already, and it looked like an absolutely crazy idea, uh, because this is only 29 years after a very improbable victory in the Revolutionary War. We still have virtually no national army whatsoever. We don't have France's help this time in this war, and it looked like a completely terrible military decision, maybe the craziest until you read the book of Joshua, uh, and you look at Jericho, because this is probably the craziest military decision and strategy that I've ever heard of, okay? Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. After rescuing um, the Israelites from Egypt, uh, we just read that in the preceding verses, Moses takes the people out of Egypt, they go through the wilderness, they finally come to the promised land, and God commands them to take this city of Jericho. And honestly, again, the plan couldn't look any worse. Uh, You know, Joshua says, what's the plan? And the Lord says, here it is, I want you to, and you know the story maybe if you've ever been in Sunday school. Uh, God says, I want you to walk around the city silently, Um, the priests, the soldiers with the ark at the center once a day for six days in a row. And then on the seventh day, I want you to walk around the city, this walled city, six times in silence. And after six times, when Joshua gives the signal, I want you to blow some trumpets and scream really loud. 
which my kids do that naturally outside in my neighborhood. That's, you know, but this is strange, right? I mean, to say the least, this is strange given what's at stake. I mean, I picture Joshua listening to the plan. He goes, okay, great. I mean, that'll get, that's a good pregame. Like, that'll get us stretched out. We're kind of pumped up because we're out there, like, yelling and running around. So what are we actually going to do? Like, what's the strategy? And God says, that's it. Good luck. And the only thing that looks crazier than the actual strategy itself is the fact that they did it, A. Like, okay, I guess we might as well give it a shot. And it worked. Right? The walls fall down, and Israel takes the city. That's the story. And that's all the author of Hebrews says. He just writes that one sentence, one verse, and that's it. And it shows us one aspect of what it looks like to live by faith in following God. And it's simply this. Faith looks, sometimes faith looks extraordinary. And what I really wanted to name this point was faith looks crazy, because it would have, but extraordinary goes better with ordinary. Anyways, uh, faith looks crazy. And sometimes God calls us to do things that seem to not make sense. Very simply. I mean, from an analysis standpoint, this looks silly. If you picture Joshua and the leaders sitting in, like, the war strategy room, and they lay the map out on the table under, like, the light, and they, they trace out the, you know, formations and everything, what would they conclude? Well, from an earthly perspective, of course, they would conclude there's absolutely no way we're doing this. You know, it doesn't add up. The dots don't connect. And we naturally, we, we want to see how things will work out. And there's a place for planning. There's a a place for wisdom, the book of Proverbs tells us, and yet at the same time, a life of faith abides by what Proverbs also says, Proverbs 3, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The truth is, if, if you can connect all the dots, if it all adds up, there's no unknown. The plan makes complete sense. You can see the end from the beginning and you refuse to take action until you can see the end from the beginning, then that's not living by faith at all. Because as verse 1 says, faith enters out into more than it can see. It trusts God and it follows. So where we want safety and control and predictability, by the way, you'll never grow in those places. We want safety, we want control, we want predictability, but God wants us in places of vulnerability that require us to trust him and trust his word. And that's where he works in us and through us. And that's what the chapter keeps saying over and over again. God wants to put us in places that requires faith and trust. Look at the examples so far. They, they look extraordinary. Abraham leaves home as an old man following a God he seemingly just met out into the middle of who knows where. God won't even tell him. That's, that's faith. Noah, well, on top of that, Abraham's um, commanded to sacrifice his only son. There's that whole thing too. And he trusts God. Noah's commanded to build a huge ark in the desert, right? Moses is commanded to go liberate an entire race of slaves from one of the most powerful nations on the face of the earth. Faith sometimes looks extraordinary. Up until this point, almost every example looks extraordinary. Uh, Drew actually said a few weeks ago, he said, there's nothing more reasonable, I wrote this down, there's nothing more reasonable than to obey God even when it looks crazy. Which makes us ask, if I'm living by faith, if that's what faith looks like, is there any part of my obedience that looks crazy any any part that looks extraordinary and I will say increasingly what has historically been considered normal things in the Christian life looks more crazy crazier by the world you know give 10% of all that I have to God's work looks kind of crazy worship on one of my two days off eh, looks crazy adhere to a Christian sexual ethic and be faithful to one person all of my life, if I'm married, 
Right? A normal, faithful Christian life is increasingly countercultural, and it looks extraordinary. It looks almost as extraordinary as walking around a city shouting, expecting walls to fall down. So on one hand, in broad strokes, we all have similar callings. We're all called to extraordinary, what we just laid out, right? A, a life of repentance and faith, of obedience and generosity and love and mission. But when you kind of zoom in a little bit, how that plays out in each of our lives looks different depending on our place and our resources and our giftings and our desires. And because of that, God's particular calling on your life won't be the same as God's particular calling on the life of somebody else. I mean, Paul got it this, this week in our CBR, 1 Corinthians 12, on the idea of particular callings. He said there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. There's one body, but there's multiple different parts, and so it looks different depending on your particular calling. How do you fit in to what God's doing? Where does God's redemptive agenda in the world and your gifting and desires meet? Frederick Buechner said, calling is where our deep gladness meets the world's greatest need. And the promise is, as we step out, is God will meet us there, just like he did at Jericho. Uh, one of my seminary professors used to say, God takes pleasure in pouring out his power on those who dare to radically align their purposes with his. And of course, I can't answer what God calls you to on that micro level, how that plays out in your particular life, but I do know it won't be comfortable. If the standard for what is God calling me to is, is it safe, is it predictable, does it make sense? Well, that's the wrong ruler. Because if you look at this list, if this is what a life of faith looks like, it looks much more like a cross. I mean, there's going to be fulfillment mixed in because you're fulfilling what God's called you to. There's going to be moments of joy for sure. But God, right, Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him because suffering produces character and character produces endurance and holiness. I was reading a book recently by Parker Palmer called Let Your Life Speak, and he said vocation, the idea of what God calls us to. Vocation at its deepest level is not, oh boy, do I want to go do this hard thing where no one, including me, understands what I'm doing. He said, vocation at its deepest level is this is something I can't not do for reasons I'm unable to explain and I fully don't understand myself. This is something I can't not do. And so sometimes faith looks extraordinary. It obeys God even when it looks crazy. And that's where the adventure begins. That's where God's power shows up once we go to that place. Uh, this might remind you of a book uh, by a man named David Platt, a pastor. He wrote a book a few years ago called Radical on these themes of following God into hard things and mission and sacrifice. Uh, and it's a good needed book, but by the, by the time you get to the end of it, you feel like, you might feel like you're doing it wrong if you're not a missionary in Africa, right? And so a few years later, another guy, uh, Michael Horton, wrote a book called Ordinary as a companion to this book. And it's a good balance to what a faithful Christian life looks like because sometimes great faith simply does the non-flashy godly thing that's right in front of it. Uh, I'm reading um, Eugene Peterson's, Pastor Eugene Peterson's uh, biography right now. And his dad was a butcher. And so as a boy, he used to go to the butcher shop and spend time with his dad there. And he said that's where he learned to see people as a congregation, the people who would come and go. And he said he saw his dad as a priest because his dad would slaughter the animals and he would give the animal parts to the people who came in. He has an amazing imagination. And it said, the book says, it placed him day after day in a context of unspectacular ordinariness, 
and he learned to see it as holy. And that phrase hit me, unspectacular ordinariness. As opposed to extraordinary, I felt like that phrase, more of us can relate to that right there. Unspectacular ordinariness. But the question is, do we see that as holy? That type of life, do you see it as holy? And so the camera's like big lens view, right, on Jericho, and then it zooms into this one woman named Rahab. And the story goes that before attacking Jericho, Joshua sent a couple spies into the city to do some recon and check things out. And so that they weren't caught, they met this woman named Rahab, and she hid the two spies in her house, and she got them out of the city. And usually there's a couple things that are emphasized about Rahab. The first one is she's a Gentile, she's not a Jew, and she's a prostitute, as the verse said. And yet, here, she's an example of a life of faith, which is a testimony right there that salvation is by grace, right? It doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, what your pedigree is, what you've done. There's nobody so far gone that the grace of Jesus can't reach them. Read Matthew 1. She's in the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, Secondly, what's usually emphasized about Rahab is just how bold and risky she is, because if she's caught hiding foreign spies, she would probably be killed. And yet, at the same time, what she actually did doesn't seem that amazing. I'm just going to say it, okay? Let's be honest. She's not splitting seas here. I mean, like, walls aren't falling down. She, she let a couple guys crash at her house, and they sneak out. And I'm not downplaying it. I, I, expe- I expect big things. Up until this point in Hebrews 11, for 30 verses, there's been really big things. It says, by faith, somebody's name, something awesome, right? So verse 31 says, by faith, Rahab, and I lean in, and I'm on the edge of my seat, And it says, gave a friendly welcome to the spies. And I'm like, go on. What's next? And that's it. That's it? Yes, thank God that's it. Thank God that's it. I mean, yes, it's it's at her own risk. She's going against her own culture. She's doing this by faith. You look at the act itself, though. Rahab did the fairly ordinary thing that was right in front of her. She gave a friendly welcome to the spies. And according to the author, who's under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he could have picked anything from the Old Testament, and this makes like the top ten plays of faith in the Old Testament. And I'm so grateful that it does. Because on most days, faith is simply trusting the Lord, walking in the Spirit, and looking for opportunities to serve God right in front of us. In the stuff that he's put under our care, the stuff that he's providentially brought to our doorstep, like the spies just showed up, what shows up in your life. Great faith is being a faithful spouse. It's loving and, and discipling your kids. It's, it's being an honest employee. It's being generous. It's stewarding, stewarding your gifts and resources towards the glory of God and the good of others. Uh, Tish Warren Harrison Uh, She wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. I would recommend that entire book. It's a great book. Uh, But she also recently wrote a book called Prayer in the Night, uh, which I'm reading now, which is great. And she's speaking in one section of how Jesus worked day in and day out. And uh, she said this. She said, in this dark world where men and women were dying, where the poor were suffering, where injustice raged in a vast and violent empire, God became flesh and built some furniture. Speaking of Jesus being a carpenter. (laughs) During all those decades that he spent building things, he wasn't preaching, healing, or clearing out temples. He wasn't starting a movement or raising the dead. The light came into the darkness, and he did ordinary work. All of Jesus' work brought redemption, not just the work that awed the crowds. I thought that was so good. 
I mean, sometimes we can get so preoccupied with the big questions of what is God calling me to, and we begin to overanalyze and stress out, and we neglect what God's given us right in front of us. Uh, years ago, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, she popularized this old poem called Do the Next Thing. And I just want to read the last three verses. Um, you can look it up on your own time. She said, many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, and guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow's child of the king. Trust them with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before you with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe beneath his wing. Leave all results. Just do the next thing. Looking for Jesus ever serener, working or suffering, be thy demeanor. In his, his dear presence, the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance, be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing, then as he beckons you, do the next thing. I mean, by faith, Rahab simply did the next thing. And the promise of the gospel is as we do the next thing in faith, God will meet us right there. Psalm 25 says, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. All the paths. There's a lot of paths in front of you. What are you going to do? Well, as we're seeking to follow him, none of these paths are sinful. What should I do? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who are following him. Psalm 59.10 says, And my God and his steadfast love will meet me. As I follow his calling on my life, as I do the next thing, he will meet me. As we follow Jesus and what he calls us to, all of his paths are paths of love and faithfulness. He's there waiting to meet us, meet us which frees us up to simply do the next thing, which might be changing a diaper. Do the next thing. Maybe it's becoming a missionary, and it is what we might term as extraordinary. Or maybe it's taking a new job or showing hospitality like Rahab did. did. Or doing the dishes or bagging groceries. Both are faith in the same degree when aimed at the same end of God's glory. Extraordinary faith, ordinary faith, however we want to, you know, um, um, what am I trying to say? Define these. Both of these are faith in the same degree when aimed at the same end of God's glory. And there's a lot of freedom in that. There's a lot of freedom in the end of that line, second verse that says, leave all results, just do the next thing. And maybe you're tempted to grow weary. You've been doing the next thing. You're doing the ordinary thing. You're like the guy at the very back of the line walking around Jericho on day six, kicking rocks. <laughs> at least that's what I would have been doing. Grumbling, like, what are we doing? You're cynical. You're frustrated. Charles Spurgeon said, your time for shouting has not yet come. God has his reasons for making us wait. Even when a pebble on that wall hasn't even shook yet, we keep doing the next thing that God has called us to. And so the author shows us with these two verses right by, side by side, great faith can look as extraordinary as marching around walls and expecting them to fall. And great faith can look as ordinary as a friendly welcome. But at the root... Right? What fuels both ways of life, of persevering faith, is that true faith looks to Jesus. True faith looks to Jesus, but first I want to see the pattern. What led Israel and Rahab to live this way? And it's simply this. Three things. One, they believed what they heard. Secondly, they performed the action in accordance with what they heard. And thirdly, God's power was manifested in connection with what they did. I'm going to say that again. One, they had faith in the Lord's word and his promise, which led them to two, obedience in his commandments. And when they did that, number three, God showed up. Joshua first heard when the commander of the Lord's army met him, 
this divine figure before he went into Jericho, and Joshua believed and he acted. And in the same way, Rahab, she told the spies, she said, for we have heard, she's a, she's a Gentile, right? She said, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She heard, she believed, and that led her to act. And as a matter of fact, James, the book of James, he uses her as an example of how faith is always expressed by what we do. Now at this point, I need to pause and say, uh, you need to go back and listen to Drew's sermon for, from last week, if you haven't heard it, on strategic non-doing. Salvation is by grace through faith, right? Uh, not by what we do, because some of y'all, you're about to get knotted up when I read James here on Rahab. Get ready. Uh, and realize these two things don't contradict. James 2, 24 through 26 says this, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and she sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What is James saying? He's saying this, a faith that is professed but does not factor into your life at all. It doesn't inform your decisions. It doesn't uh, determine your priorities in life. It doesn't change the way you treat anybody. It's a theoretical pseudo-faith. Because real, authentic faith gets down into your daily life. That's all, what Hebrews 11, all of Hebrews 11 is about. Real faith changes what you do. It has an impact on you and other people. It has an impact ultimately on history itself. And this is how God usually works out his plans. I'm going to say that again. This is how God usually works out his divine plans through what we actually do. The Westminster Confession of Faith says God, in his ordinary providence, makes use of means. In his ordinary providence, the normal, usual way that he works things out, his plans, is he makes use of means. In other words, he uses secondary causes to accomplish his will. So there's a sense in which things will not come to pass apart from our faith-fueled obedience. Like, what if the Israelites rolled their eyes at God's instructions and they didn't encircle Jericho? What, what would that have meant? Now, the fact that God uses secondary means causes, that makes them no less sovereign. What that does is it dignifies our lives. It, it means what we do matters. We have purpose. And if that's true, if that's how God normally works, then my question is, what opportunities or works of God might we be missing because we don't hear, believe, and act, but we shrink back? So what... What might have happened, right? Of course, we believe, stay with me, we believe that all things come to pass according to God's decree one way or the other. So the question really is, are we going to get in on it or not? Because he's inviting us to get in on it. That's what Hebrews 11 is. All of these are invitations. You want to get in on this? I have a big redemptive agenda. I'm saving the entire world. Come get in on this. That's what these people are doing. They're getting in on it. Now, ultimately, it's the Lord's work. I mean, at Jericho, it's clear, salvation belongs to the Lord and no one else. That's why the ark was carried at the center of the ranks, because the ark represented God's presence, right? It wasn't the shouts that ultimately made the walls fall. That was the Lord's doing. And we see it with Rahab, too. In Joshua 2.18, she let the spies out by a scarlet cord. I mean, do you hear the echoes of the gospel in these stories? Do you see Jesus? All right, the scarlet cord cries out of the blood of Jesus that rescues us from sin and death and delivers us into righteousness and eternal life. In Jesus, God has given us a friendly welcome. Right? We, we rejected him in our sin. We were 
when we were enemies, Jesus said, I have called you friends. Romans says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We see the gospel in the story of Rahab, but also in the story of Jericho. Just as Israel was silent as they encircled the walls and they all yelled and the rocks fell, Jesus was silent as he stood before Pilate and he was on trial. And he yelled out on the cross and rocks began to split and there was victory. At Jericho, many see the commander of the Lord's army as a Christophany. That's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And many see that as Jesus because in Revelation 19, when he comes again, he's the leader of the Lord's army. And just as he said to Joshua, go into Jericho, right? Jesus, our commander, says to us, go, go into all the world and make disciples. But as we're sent, Paul says, we fight not against flesh and blood. It's a different battle. We fight against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness. And those walls are much harder to bring down than the ones at Jericho. And the means that he gives us look just as ineffective as the strategy at Jericho. I mean, he gives us his word and prayer and love and mercy and justice. But as we go, and we sing sometimes, we go armed by faith. And that's where God's power is revealed, just as in these stories. Right? With the Holy Spirit in us, faith enables us to do things that otherwise we wouldn't be able to do. And that's a good question. Is there anything in my life that I'm doing that I wouldn't be able to do if it wasn't for my faith in in the Lord and his promises to me in the gospel? And the good news is, as we go, like the Israelites, we don't go alone, right? Jesus isn't only our commander. Hebrews 2 says he's the captain of our salvation. He's the one who already won the battle in his life, death, and resurrection, defeating our enemies, and he calls us to follow. Follow in courage. Follow in hope. Follow in faith as we cling to his promises. And so the work now to do as I close is one, rest in Jesus, right? Cling to the scarlet cord of his blood. Secondly, ask the Holy Spirit, God, what does this look like in my life? What does it mean to follow you? What does it mean uh, to follow you in faith? And spend some time reflecting, consider your place, your resources, your gifts, your desires, and where do those things, where do you align with his agenda, with his kingdom? And maybe this is a time to repent, to say, Lord, forgive me for resisting where you've been calling me. Maybe you know, ultimately, where God is calling you and what he's calling you to do, but you've been resisting. Or maybe it's a time to repent and say, Father, forgive me for resenting what you've put under my care as if it's a small thing, as if you don't work in this. We pray, Lord, refresh our souls and energize us for the work you've given us. Help us to see the holy in the ordinary. And lastly, we pray, Right As we look to Jesus, pray, God, give me a heart to hear the gospel promises, to believe, and the courage to act, and then ultimately to leave the results to you. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for uh, these stories and these short verses. There's so much packed in here. There's entire stories and people and histories, uh, Lord, as we open up the Old Testament and we read through these. Uh, Father, give us eyes to see. Uh, The reality is uh, all of these words that we speak out loud, um, that we sing, that we pray, that we preach, are ultimately vain unless you, by your Holy Spirit, take them and plant them in the secret places of our heart. And you give us eyes to see of what this means for us today in the world that we live in. Not only the world that we share, but also our specific places in life and our relationships and giftings and what you've called us to. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be glorified. Thank you, Jesus, uh, that you are our Savior. Thank you, God, that we, we don't go alone. 
uh, that you are with us wherever we go. And I pray that you would take away any spirit of fear and fill up our hearts with faith and courage as we seek to follow you, as we enter in uh, on a mission that in many ways we can't lose because of the resurrection. And so, Lord, we ask you to work. And in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here today. Thank you to those online who joined us. Uh, as you go, a couple things. One, we normally take up a mercy offering uh, that goes to works in our city on communion Sundays. But since we're not passing a plate, there will be a place to give that as you walk out the door if you'd like to give towards that. Secondly, if you don't mind, just take your communion trash because we have another group coming. Uh, he will hold us fast. That's the promise as we go. I love this verse in Isaiah. Uh, it says, you know, uh, a mama will forget about her nursing baby before God will forget about you. And I'm always like, that's pretty strong, <laughs> right? That's how fast he will hold you. That's how closely he will hold you, and he goes with us. And so receive this benediction, this promise, as you go out those doors and follow Jesus in faith. This is his promise to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.